After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, Take this and divide it among you. For I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it, and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after the supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood, which is poured out for you. But the hand of him who is going to betray me is with mine on the table. The Son of Man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. They began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them was considered to be greatest. Jesus said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who exercise authority over them call themselves benefactors. But you are not to be like that. Instead, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like the one who serves. For who is greater, the one who is at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who is at the table? But I am among you as one who serves. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and I confer on you a kingdom just as my Father conferred one on me, so that you may eat and drink at my table, in my kingdom, and sit on thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat. But I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen others. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Well, allow me to simply say how much I appreciate the youth of this community and of this church. As you saw, some of the ladies leading us in worship or young men running the technology. If it were not for our students, we would have a rather quick service and uh, we would miss out on a lot of the things that uh, tie us together. Um, I, I know my own experience. I sang my first solo in church when I was in second grade. When I got to be about Austin's age, I began collecting the offering at our church. And then when I got into my teen years, had opportunity to share the devotional um, at youth night. And so as we honor 4-H clubs, 
I know that leadership preparation is a huge part of what 4-H is all about, and uh, we want to honor our future leaders and, and the opportunity that we give them to develop their, um, their leadership. But we turn to um, Luke 22, and in your pew Bibles, it's not page 150 or 1052, it's 1048. So if you don't know your way around the Bible, but you want to follow along with us, the black Bible's in the rack in front of you. The lesson begins on page 1048. You know, as we gather together in a place like this, a, a common accusation of religion, of any sect, is that the group includes hypocrites. And I've heard from more than my share of people that use that excuse to avoid committing to any church. I don't want to go to that church because there are hypocrites there. But I am fully aware that hypocrites are not the only reason people stay away from church. And I realize that church is not the only place dealing with declining attendance. I found a list of reasons why one person has decided not to attend sporting events any longer. The top 10 reasons not to attend a sporting event. Every time I went, they asked for money. Number two, the people sitting in my road didn't seem very friendly. Reason number three, the seats were very hard. Reason number four, the referees made a decision that I did not agree with. Number five, I was sitting with hypocrites. They only came to see what the other fans were wearing. Reason six, you know, some of the games went into overtime and I was late getting home. Reason number seven, The band played some songs that I had never heard before. Number eight, the games are scheduled on my only day to sleep in and to run errands. Reason number nine, to not attend sporting events. Since I read a book on sports, I feel that I know more than the coaches anyway. And reason number ten. I don't want to take my children because I want them to choose for themselves what sport they like best. I'm confident that you would see these as uh, pretty extreme excuses to avoid a sporting event. But they almost seem defensible when it comes to church. Now, I don't know where the idea originated that church was only for perfect people or for people who act like they're perfect. I have never met a pastor, and I've only met one church attendee who claimed to be sinless. As a matter of fact, I have told people to stop looking for a church with perfect people. Because if you ever find that church, as soon as you join it, it will no longer be perfect. The chapter in front of us today, though, dispels the perfect people myth. 
Because imperfect people are welcomed, they are served, and they are blessed at the Lord's table. In the scripture in front of us, it begins by telling the story of Passover. Because in Passover, God delivered imperfect people. The story goes back to the Old Testament or the Hebrew Scriptures book of Exodus. And verse 15 of today's text tells us that the occasion for this meal between Jesus and his disciples was the Passover feast. From the very first observance of Passover in Egypt, 1,500 years earlier than the story in front of us, Passover was the night that God extended mercy by causing the death angel to pass over any home that had the blood of a lamb painted on the door. The death angel did not enter into that home, but passed. And it was not based upon any of the goodness or the merit of the people within the house. The angel of death was responding to the faith of those who were inside. Those who believed God would keep his word and chose to follow his prescription. When they chose to believe God can be trusted, they did what he said by painting the top of the door and the two sides with blood, and the angel of death passed over those homes. Any traditions that last this long, 1,500 years, surely gets tweaked and adapted over the years. And from the time of Passover in Egypt until the time that Jesus observes it with his disciples here in Luke 22, somewhere a long time, a tradition had become established among the Jewish people that they would drink Four cups of wine. Not four bottles of wine, four cups of wine. And these four cups go back to Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 and 7. See, you understand that oral traditions were passed down from generation to generation, just as your family has some unwritten traditions. And we don't know when these traditions uh, started, but some believe that these traditions, as recorded in the Mishnah, were actually in place at the time of Christ. The Mishnah is the name of a book, a Jewish book, that writes down the oral stories that were passing from generation to generation. As Constantine declared that Christianity would be the official religion of Rome in the early 4th century, at about the same time, the Jewish people were afraid if there is a national Christianity, then our traditions may get lost. So we better write them down so that we can remember the traditions. They realized that their traditions were in jeopardy, so they wrote them down. And the recording of this oral history includes, and I read, there is an obligation to drink four cups of wine during the Seder. 
I haven't had four cups of wine my entire life, but every year they were expected to have four cups during that one meal. The Mishnah says in Pesachim 10.1, even the poor are obliged to drink the four cups. And each cup is imbibed at a specific point in the Seder. The first cup is the Kedush. The second cup is the Machid. The third is the Berkat Hamazon. And the fourth cup is the Hallel. And yes, these will be on the quiz at the end of the service. The four cups of wine were the four expressions of deliverance that were promised by God. Those four cups come exactly from Exodus chapter 6, verses 6 or 7. God told Moses, Say therefore to the people of Israel, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the burden of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from slavery to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with great acts of judgment, and I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burden of the Egyptians." And it is this third cup, the I will redeem you cup, that Jesus is talking about in verse 18, that he shares with the disciples. He took the third cup, the cup of redemption, and then he says, I refuse to drink the fourth cup, the cup of promising to come again, until that is fulfilled. So we see within the Passover traditions exactly what Jesus was trying to say when he says, pass this cup around and all of you celebrate the cup of redemption and at a future time, I will drink the cup of taking you as my people. Notice the promise to redeem God's people is the cup that Jesus explains in verse 20. This cup, the cup of redemption, is the new covenant in my blood. My friends, we are not redeemed by the sacrifice of blood and bulls, of uh, the blood of bulls and goats. We are not redeemed by our offerings, by our observance of sacraments, by our suffering, or by our good deeds. These are not the basis of our redemption. Our redemption is rooted in the new covenant in Christ's blood. If you are familiar with the Catholic Church, you may know that October 31st, 1517, was the beginning of a split of many other denominations from the Roman Church. If you are familiar with the Lutheran Church, you may know that the Catholic monk who sparked that split was a Catholic monk named Martin Luther, from which we get Lutheranism. But Luther did not want to create a split. He simply wanted other monks to admit that we are not redeemed by sacrifice, offering, sacrament, suffering, or good deeds. 
our redemption was promised by God, and the contract is sealed in Christ's blood. So that our penitence, our genuine repentance, is more important than any donations we would ever make to a church. There were four cups. This is the third cup, the cup of redemption, that Jesus is really zeroing in their attention. Because Jesus is trying to tell us that Passover never intended to focus on the goodness of the people. It was always about the mercy of God to imperfect people. The imperfection of Passover participants is magnified as Jesus exposes the shortcomings of two of the participants who were at the very table with him as they observed the Passover. And while he calls out two of the disciples, all of the others admitted that they were capable of the very things that those two did. Because in this Passover, the one in Luke chapter 22, Jesus dined with imperfect people. As he was dining with imperfect people, the first one that I see is the betrayer. Verses 21 through 23, he says, One of you whose hand is on the table with me is about to betray me. But Jesus chooses not to shame that individual. He doesn't call him out by name. Matthew chapter 26, beginning in verse 21 and following, gives a more detail into this scene that we read here from Luke's account. And when we look into more detail in the Matthew 26 account, it tells us that instead of questioning each other, do you think he's the one? Do you think he's the one? No, I'm sure it's, it's him. He's the one who's going to betray. Matthew 26 tells that each of the disciples in turn asked, Lord, is it I? Each of them knew that they were capable of betraying the Lord. None of them had a we're better than the rest mindset. Because betrayal can be tricky. Few of us ever wake up one day thinking, hmm, I think today will be the day that I betray my values and my friends. But fatigue, pressure, peer pressure, financial pressure, weakness can cause any of us to betray our allegiance or our determination to love Christ. In the weakness of our moments, we are each capable of the same betrayal that Christ describes in verses 21 through 23. But the betrayer is not the only imperfect person at the table. Because we go on to read in verses 24 through 27 that there are benefactors who are imperfect, and also there are the belittled who are imperfect. Verse 25 in front of us describes the those who cherish their power and their privilege and and they only ration out small pieces of kindness. 
because they're benefactors. Let me hold on to my power and I'll just give you little pieces. And you will consider me good because I've given you this little piece. Those who are miserly in their kindness towards others should not be considered the greatest. Jesus doesn't say the powerful who give out little morsels are the greatest. And God's kingdom, contrary to society's rules, Jesus says that accumulating power for yourself is not a sign of greatness. And then, not only are the powerful at the table, but the belittled servants who are around the edge of the room, they are not to be esteemed. Because those who were belittled as servants denigrate themselves to undervalue their role in the kingdom. Oh, I'm just a little old servant. I'll never make a difference. Both the powerful benefactors and the belittled servers are less than the greatest. They are marked by their imperfection. The only perfect one at the table, the only perfect one in the room, is Jesus himself. The previous 21 chapters of Luke's gospel have shown repeatedly that he has the right to be worshipped and obeyed. But the end of verse 21 reveals that Christ's greatness as the one who is willing to use his power not to dole out morsels, but to serve the others. This reminds me of what Paul writes in Philippians chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in a human form, he humbled himself, becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The greatest is not the benefactor. The greatest is not the belittled. The greatest is the one that uses his greatness to serve others. And in the next three verses, Jesus explains how he serves from greatness. Because verses 28 through 30 reveal those who are blessed. And while they are blessed, they are still imperfect. Although those at the table were each capable of betraying him, Jesus sets aside their imperfection and he promised them a seat at his table of privilege. And he assigns them seats of authority. Just as the Israelites were not passed over because of their goodness, but because of God's mercy, the disciples are promoted. Not because of their goodness, but by God's mercy. They are blessed by his mercy. And that is the only hope that you and I have today. The only hope we have is not rooted in our goodness, but in his mercy. And after this great promise of blessing to the imperfect people, Jesus wants to put any temptation to pride into its perfect perspective. So, 
after the Passover, he tells Peter that he would deny as an imperfect person. Verses 31 through 32 tell us that Peter had a personality that had demonstrated itself to sometimes speak first and think later. Not that I would ever know what that's like. But Jesus calls out Peter by saying, Your failure will not be terminal. I, I, I see a kindness in the way Jesus does not call out the ultimate weakness of Judas, but he's not hesitant to point out that he believes there is strength after Peter's imperfection. For he says, when you have turned again. And there's a kindness that Jesus says, Peter, you're going to fail, but after you fail... That's not the end of the story. And then we look ahead and we see verse 33, and it's just one more example of Peter speaking without knowing what he's talking about. And in verse 34, Jesus prophesies specifically the scene that we will examine in a couple of weeks. It begins in verse 54 of this chapter. See, being good has never been a requirement to come to the table. The compassion of God extends an invitation to come. The Israelites were invited to come to the Passover. The disciples came to a prepared table. And God invites you today to come to the table. I love the words of Isaiah chapter 55 where we read, Come, everyone who's thirst, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. He invites all to come to the table. Because the reality is, is that mercy is for imperfect people. Adam and Eve were not perfect people, but God promised mercy. Abraham was not a perfect man, but God promised mercy. The Israelite nation was not perfect, but God offered mercy through the Passover feast. The disciples were not perfect, but Jesus speaks of a new covenant of mercy that was sealed in his blood. And Jesus offers this redemption, knowing their past and their future flaws. And today we come to the same meal established by Jesus himself as a proclamation of faith in his death until he comes again. And I realize we have people from many different faith traditions and many different understanding of, of the Eucharist, understanding of the Lord's table. But I invite you, if you know the Lord as your personal Savior, to come to the table, to come and to drink, to come and to buy without money. For we bring nothing to the table, but we come open-handed and we receive of His mercy. 
As we come to the table, though, there are certain instructions, certain things that were always intended to be followed. This is Reformation Day, the day that we remember October 31st, 